Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the new weekly podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, with another look at the week and what it tells us about how government works and doesn't. This week, well, he got there in the end. Boris Johnson has his general election, but not his Brexit deal. Johnson wants this to be the Brexit election. Joe Swinson, leader of the Liberal Democrats, wants it to be the stop Brexit election. And Jeremy Corbyn, every sign shows, wants it to be the don't mention Brexit election. So what happens during this six-week battle? And what does the result actually mean for Brexit and many other things? To shine some light on it all, I'm joined in the studio by some of my IFG colleagues. Joe Owen is director of our Brexit programme. Hi, Joe. Hello. Joe, you wrote a piece about the Royal Mint this week. What has that got to do with Brexit? So this was about our Brexit commemorative 50p coins and now how we are on to at least our third design as the date keeps changing. So we can't get a commemorative issue with all three of the dates on 50p pieces. And you just heard her then. Dr Catherine Haddon is our in-house historian. Hi, Kath. Hi. On last week's show, you predicted that nothing would happen this week. So close? I was I was right for a few hours, a few days <laughs> even, because I said that the you know withdrawal agreement wouldn't be brought back, that they wouldn't pass the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, I've said it already, Joe, uh, uh, votes on a general election, that the government might go on strike or threaten to go on strike. And they did do that for a few days, yeah. but everything has All right, so changed. from the government's point of view, quite a lot of nothing happened before, yeah. finally, the election. Yeah. And also joining us is Dr Hannah White, our Deputy Director. Hi, Hannah. Hello. Hannah, you used to be a clerk in the House of Commons, and presumably when people announce a general election, that means a very long holiday. I think it used to mean that. I think these days, although there are no MPs, now that um, once Parliament's dissolved, actually it means a frenetic bout of activity, getting ready for the next lot and uh, getting everything in place so that they can hit the ground running once they arrive. So is the House of Commons essentially empty now? I think what's probably happening is they're taking uh, this unexpected or perhaps expected, but we didn't know exactly when, period of time to do a few emergency repairs. If you get a few weeks with no MPs, you run around trying to uh, stop the Palace of Westminster falling down anymore. Is it like in school when you have inset days and the teachers are in but the kids aren't in? Yeah, the staff will be in. The select committee who, staff who are will the be... kids, though? In this? <laughs> oh, that's up to you to choose, Bromley. <laughs> <laughs> the staff will be preparing for the for the new committees and so on coming back. I mean, let's remember they have worked so hard. So um, I imagine they'll be fitting in. They'll be fitting in some leave if they well, can. Not gonna, uh, those are the six weeks of campaigning out to come right now. On this week's podcast, we're also talking to David Liddington. Until a few months ago, really the Deputy Prime Minister, but now stepping down as a Conservative MP. A key battleground of this election is going to be public spending. Next week was meant to be the Chancellor's big moment, standing up to deliver his first budget. We're now not going to have that, but we are going to have a lot of talk about public spending a competition of promises from both parties. And I'm going to be joined by Gemma Tetlow, our chief economist, to hear her big idea about tax and how the parties approach this. And we'll be joined by our colleague Gavin Freegard for a surprising and educational musical interlude. You can find Inside Briefing every week on iTunes, Spotify, Acast and all your favourite platforms. So do subscribe and if you get a moment, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Let's talk about the unavoidable, the general election, and what it might mean for Brexit and for everything else. Kath, let me start with you. How will will this parliament be viewed by history? It's a really difficult one. So we've got a 2017 to 2019 parliament that 
you know, on the one hand, failed to come to any decision over uh, Brexit. If you remember back in the spring, we had these indicative votes where they were given a range of options and none of them passed the threshold. Uh, mostly it's been about trying to stop the things that it didn't want to happen. Which, by and large, it's been pretty successful in Which doing. is the other side of it. It could be remembered as the parliament that managed to avoid a no-deal Brexit and, you know, actually put the government under pressure. And remember, it was also a minority government, um, a minority parliament. You know, the Lib Dems have grown over the course of the parliaments. Labour and the Conservatives have shrunk. So there's all these ups and downs. But, I mean, when we stand back, as people in other countries do, they've been watching this theatre on their televisions for months and months. Do we look at this as failure? Do we look at it as the failure of the British system? Or do we look at it as parliament reflecting what people actually well, I th- think, I think and, and MPs actually doing their yeah, job? Yeah, I think it's quite important, actually, that so much of the action has been in Parliament because it's been a real focus for the public on it. You know, all the stuff that we do around talking about it, Hannah and I are frequently tweeting about complex parliamentary procedures with all our colleagues. and Record viewing numbers on ParliamentLive.tv. Exactly, yeah. Do you think it'll be seen as an, an anomaly? Do you think if... If there is a majority, for example, you mentioned... A majority a, government. A majority yeah. government, exactly, comes back. We will just look back on the kind of head case days of 2017 to 2019 and... I think that, that that's what politicians are all hoping will happen. They're yeah. all hoping that reality, that normality will reassert itself and someone will win a majority. But actually, I think the important thing for Parliament and parliamentarians to be thinking about is actually maybe the new reality is minorities and coalitions and no one winning a big majority. And actually, if that's the case, we need a really serious think about how we do government and how we run Parliament, which is set up for a situation with two big parties and a big majority. So what, so what are the things that are broken, if you like, or don't that work for majority governments and really don't work when we've got a minority government? Government is used to getting its way in Parliament because it's used to having a majority. But actually what we've seen in the last couple of years is, is no, if you can find alternative majorities for things, you can do things that government doesn't like. And one that's of the been most, quite a wake-up call. I one think, of the most government. interesting things I've heard say about this is how extraordinary it is that if you look back at the majority government, of, certainly of Tony Blair, the way in which he approached even his own backbenchers, almost as you would expect a minority government to do, hesitant, worrying about keeping them all on board. And so he had record majorities. And yet the Theresa May, Boris Johnson governments have approached minority government as if they are a majority and that they do have these large numbers and sort of trying to push through big policy areas that way. And when, when we've spoken to civil servants about how you've kind of how they've managed the Brexit process, they've said this quite interesting things about how Parliament used to be this thing down the road that their ministers took care of and they never really had to think about how it would impact the policy making process and the delivery process. But Brexit has shown that it can entirely veer you off course. And in and fact, s- entirely shape your policy entirely the calculation about what will get through parliament or won't exactly really so becomes, government needs to policy. think about how to get policy if the government doesn't have a majority it needs to think about what it can do without legislation you know legislation always used to be the thing where this is a really important become point become a secretary of state and you you need to sort of cut your teeth with a big bill in parliament <laughs> well that's just not you know, a feasible thing to do if you don't have a majority. So what can you do without legislation? How can you build consensus for legislation in advance rather than introducing it and trying to sort of rush it through without Parliament thinking they have enough time to... Because backbenchers have found in this Parliament 
for the first time, actually, if they rebel, if they get together and build coalitions, they can achieve things which government doesn't want. And that's been quite sort of a, a wake-up call, I think. For, no, I mean, know, that is a, that's sometimes a problem, though. If We have seen with this government as well, one of the things you can do without legislation, or at least start to do, is promise lots of money. And we might get into that later about how big public spending pledges then come out and other ways of trying to announce policy that uh, don't involve putting a, a bill through Parliament. Hannah, how much do you think the Speaker, John Burko, stepping down this week, how much has he actually changed the rules to help backbenchers take the government to hold it to account and uh, increase their powers? I think he would say he's stood up for Parliament because there is a set of rules in Parliament which it is the Speaker's job to interpret. And when the government comes forward and says, we want to do things this way, we want to, you know, we want to introduce this at this time and, and do it this way, the Speaker then has to take a view on whether that's legitimate or not. And I think on things like granting urgent questions, which have been entirely in his gift, he's really been the champion of the backbenchers. And this saying, is where a backbencher can call a minister to Parliament and can say, I've got an urgent question. And you've got to come and and that, answer urgent this. questions aren't just about getting back benches involved, though they're also a way for Parliament to talk about the issues of the day. And, to you make know, it the, more topical. Exactly. And, you know, the danger is that parliamentarians otherwise are just talking about things that were tabled the week before, and so it's not. So you could but, say that this has been really healthy. Absolutely. And then there have been other things where the, the Speaker has, t- has taken a view on the way in which procedures should be interpreted, and, you know, he's taken a view on... Uh, what decisions he thinks the House wants to make and providing opportunities for it to make those decisions. And I think, as I say, he would say that he's been vindicated in lots of those situations. Given the opportunity, the House has made decisions, not necessarily ones that the government would like. You know, he's provided the opportunity, the House has then made the decision. How much of this is going to stay after John Burko goes? Different speaker candidates will take different approaches to this. The more significant thing will be what majority or not a new government gets. A new government with a majority will be able to, you know, these things won't happen. So it's really, the fact, we're in minority, the fact that everyone was talking a lot about the speaker, about what John Burke was doing, this was a reflection of minority government, an awful lot of what he was doing, and it's irrelevant if there is a majority. The two things combined, but without, yeah, without a, a minority, the, the opportunity wouldn't be there. All right, well, we've got the speaker elections next week, and we'll come back to that in next week's podcast. But how about getting ready for government? We do quite a bit of work at the IFG privately with ministers and opposition on preparing for government because it's a job not like others. You just get suddenly parachuted into it. Uh, Cass, t- tell us a bit about I mean, how should the opposition be preparing now out on the campaign trail at the same time some of them may be suddenly leading departments if, if, if they win. Yeah, there's three main things they need to think about. One is uh, their policies as well as obviously getting the manifestos out there and trying to win uh, the campaign on the back of them. They also have to think about if they get into office, how are they going to implement them. Uh, The second is government and what that looks like. Are they going to do any reorganisations of departments, create new departments? And then the third bit is people. They've got a large number of people, whichever opposition party you look at, who haven't experience of government. So how are they preparing their people to understand what it's really like to be a minister? Obviously, we've got these fantastic Ministers Reflect interviews that they can uh, read through the whole of the campaign if they're not busy enough. We do. And one of the more human points we try and get across to them, not the technical points but just what it feels like mm. is that it's really quite solitary 
you know, there might have been, you know, in a in shadow cabinet meetings or, um, or party yeah, all meetings that they, they'll all be, you know, uh, squashed in together yeah. at the moment, planning campaigns. Suddenly, if you're a minister, you're on your own in yeah, a department you're off, with civil servants. Yeah, you're off in your department. You're suddenly you've got thousands of people who support you. You've got your private office. You're being whisked around all over the place, and you've got a huge pile of decisions to come at you. A lot of briefing material. You know, it's a very steep learning curve, and it has a big impact on your personal life as well. Suddenly, you know, private office takes over your diary, takes organises everything from sort of, you know, doctors, dentist appointments to basically getting home of an evening. So there's a huge amount to it. Well, we're just at the beginning of the campaign. We've still got you know six weeks to go. But if we just try and take a snapshot of what you know what might happen and the, the consequences for Brexit, Joe, is it fair to say that really everything from No Deal to Remain is in some way possibly on the table. Yeah, everything's on the table. Three and a half years after the referendum. Three and a half years after the referendum, six months after we were supposed to have left, every single option is on the table in this uh, general election. I think if you assume that it's kind of either likely to be, uh, no offence to the Liberal Democrats, either Conservative or Labour who enter number 10, the big question I think for Labour will be what does their deal look like that they want to put to the people in a referendum? We still don't know many details about what it is they would actually try and negotiate. For the Conservatives, I think the, you know, the thing for Boris Johnson will be, yes, getting back into number 10, but also what the parliamentary arithmetic looks like, because it's not just about scraping through the withdrawal agreement bill, which he could do if he had a very, very narrow majority. He then has to embark on the negotiations for our future relationship, which will be more divisive, more complicated, cover a whole host of more areas. And so having a very tight majority with people in the party who have different views that you cannot afford to upset or lose is much, much more difficult than having a safe majority of even just 10, 15, where you know you can upset a few people. But also, you you have to think about the different variations, because the Conservative Party, if they come back, they don't have that majority, or even the small ones, do they again look to the DUP for support? If it's Labour, they have to be thinking about what kind of support could they get from either Scottish National Party or Liberal Democrats, whether it's you know, supply and confidence or coalition. The Liberal Democrats yeah. have said that they won't go into coalition but you've got to be thinking about all the different scenarios if you're Labour at this point. And for the Conservatives, I mean, that's your route to no deal, isn't it? That you end up with a minority government, you don't have enough numbers and you've got to call the DUP up, having <laughs> previously having, not having, being having, too having... nice to them over the last few weeks. Do you need to go back to Brussels at that point if you're the government or does no deal come back on the table? Well, we'll keep coming back to all these questions in the coming weeks. But Hannah, I just wanted to pick up one other thing that did obviously happen this week, and that was the first report into the Grenfell, the first stage of the Grenfell inquiry. What should we make of that and of public inquiries? Whitewash or really the best way to go about looking into these things? The IFG has done some work on public inquiries in the past. And one of the things that we have pointed out and which has really come through, I think, from this first inquiry report is the fact that you know public inquiries can do really good work, really thorough investigations. But actually, the problem is that the recommendations they make, which may be excellent recommendations, don't always get implemented. And once the inquiry has finished, accountability for delivering those recommendations isn't necessarily there. Who's making sure they get implemented? This inquiry report said that there were past fires which were the, the lessons from those fires hadn't been learnt and those failures were repeated at Grenfell. Well, we'll come back to that as well and look at whether the lessons of this inquiry and the really fairly tough messages it delivered about the uh, London Fire Brigade, for example, are going to be learned. 
Now let's take a look at this week's big idea. Tax. We might grumble about paying it, but without it, governments couldn't pay for all the services that we rely on. But is the tax system actually working? I want to turn now to Gemma Tetlow, our chief economist, who's been writing on this for us for some time. And Gemma, tell us about why this is a big problem for modern countries before we get into some of the intricate detail about tax and the uh, the government now. The difficulties of designing the tax system and keeping the tax system up to date with the modern world is a problem that faces not only the UK government, but governments around the world. And there are a number of reasons why this is quite difficult. There are various economic and behavioural trends that are undermining the existing tax system. So meaning that governments are less able to raise even the same revenues as they raised last year. So what kind of things are changing? It's things like, uh, for example, our trend towards using more fuel efficient vehicles. That means that we raise less money from fuel duty than we were been one of the big engines, sorry for the pun, uh, of government tax in the past. It's a decent chunk of government money at the moment. It raises about £28 billion a year. But as we try and shift towards net zero and electric cars, all of that money is eventually going to go away. And that poses a problem for the government. There are You might say it's cigarettes as well. Behavioural changes in around tobacco mean that we raise less money than we once did um, from things like smoking. And actually even alcohol. Uh, young people drink less alcohol than they once did. And this do. is really interesting because these are taxes that government have brought into shape people's behaviour and they've been successful and so government gets less tax. Yes, we wouldn't, shouldn't necessarily think about this as being a failure. Government did yeah. try and tax these things precisely because they didn't want people to... Uh, pollute through using fuel or through smoking. However, it does have implications for the way that government funds uh, public services and welfare. There are other things which are somewhat more UK specific. So the shift towards more self-employment and people working for their own companies means that we're now raising relatively less money from work. Um, That's a UK problem because we tax self-employment and company owner managers less heavily than we tax people who actually work for an employer. And actually the design of the tax system has encouraged more people to go into self-employment and that is also undermining the amount that we raise in taxes. And what's the effect of the ageing of the population that we hear an awful lot about? The ageing population is particularly putting pressure on public spending needs. So it means we need to spend more on the NHS, more on social care, public pensions as well. But at the same time, it means that uh, we have fewer people in the working population. That is undermining the amount we raise in tax revenues. And it's getting harder in some ways to tax companies, uh, something that's bound to feature in in the election. But companies might choose whether or not they recognise that they have to pay tax in the UK or try and register some of their their business somewhere else? Taxing multinational companies is a big problem for the UK, as with other governments. And the issue there is that if the UK tries to raise taxes on multinational companies, they have a choice to try and shift their profits elsewhere. And it's particularly problematic with the big digital companies like Amazon and Google, because they really have no physical presence where they do their business. It's very easy for them to claim that their profits are generated in low tax jurisdictions. So as you said, this is common to lots of governments, yet they need tax to run a country. They've really got nothing without that. And yet, for all these reasons, it's becoming much harder to get it. Things like the issues around multinational taxation are very difficult to explain to the general population. It creates this impression that why aren't these big companies paying their fair share of tax, which makes it even harder for governments to sell the message to the electorate that you need to pay more tax. You personally ought to pay tax, but but Amazon, well, we're just finding that a bit too difficult. So let's jump right back to the present or to next week. We were going to have a budget, Sajid Javid. The Chancellor was going to stand up and tell us his, his first budget. Now he isn't. Does it matter that we're not going to have a budget? 
Yes and no, I think, is the answer to the question. Um, I'm not going to make an economist joke. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We were trawling back through the archives in preparation for today to see when was the last time we had a calendar year without a budget. And I think it's right to say that it's been at least... 119 years since that has happened. So there's no year since 1900 when a government has not passed a budget in a calendar year. Often more than one. Indeed, often more than one. And so that's the no part of my answer. The Hmm. IFG has said in the past that actually it's not good for governments to tinker too frequently with the tax system. And we've in the past, encouraged governments, and Philip Hammond stuck to this, to have just one fiscal event a year. Rather that means than... one budget or spring statement, but not both. Is that because the politicians are always sort of tempted to bring rabbits out of hats in order to do exciting things with budgets, which they don't necessarily need to do, more tinkering than is otherwise required? It's a particular problem in the UK that governments use budgets to command the headlines and use it as an opportunity to pull out surprise tax policies and announce small giveaways to um, gain public support. But they always seem to backfire or regularly seem to backfire with there was the, the VAT tax, pasty tax. Is it a political benefit or is it actually sometimes um, a kind of tripwire that governments fall over when they announce surprise things through budgets? I think politicians and chancellors like it because they think it's the one opportunity they have to really command the headlines. But you're right that there have been plenty of examples where those kind of surprise tax changes have totally backfired on governments. So they should have given more thought to them? I mean, if you talk to people in the Treasury, which we do, they say, you know, they would love in ways some of these things to be tested more carefully, to be trialled, this kind of thing. Is that too purist? It can sound a bit purist, but actually other countries do a lot more of that. um, And it is a way of testing and making sure you haven't missed some major problem with the policy. In terms of whether they should give more thought to it, I mean, the the VAT on pasties that Joe just mentioned is a good example where we know from former advisors and Treasury officials that this was a policy that had always been on the list and every Chancellor had always struck it off on the grounds that it raised very little money. And how do you tell the public why we particularly need to tax pasties as opposed to anything else in the world. Um, And for some reason, George Osborne allowed it into that budget and it turned out to be a big mistake, probably not because of a lack of thought. No amount of pasties or sausage rolls he could eat after that to make up. (laughs) Gemma, where's government going to get tax in the future if it's brought in these taxes, some of them called sin taxes, that have got rid of the sin? Partly that's a political question. Obviously, it's a judgment for future governments about whether they want to try and make up these revenues that they might lose to maintain the size of the state as it is, or whether they want to actually scale back public services instead. If you do want to try and make up some of these revenues, there are ways that you could try to do that. So, for example, you could try and tax self-employment more heavily than we do at the moment. It's hard to justify the lower tax on self-employment in terms of lower benefits that those people accrue. For something like fuel duties, part of the reason for having that tax was to tackle the the costs that car drivers impose on everyone else. And actually one of the, the biggest costs there is the congestion that they cause on the roads, the amount of other people's time that they take up by having their car out there. And actually that is true whether you're driving an electric car or driving a petrol-driven car. So there's a really big question there about could we shift more to ro- towards road charging as we have with the congestion charge in London. And there, I mean, there's a political decision to be made, but it would be much easier for a government to introduce congestion charging at the same time as they could say, well, we're going to cut fuel duty than it will be to leave it many years when actually no one's paying fuel duty anyway and then you're just trying to charge people extra. 
absolutely none of these suggestions about raising more tax is popular in an election campaign. None of the parties is going to want to come forward and say this is the, these are the taxes we're going to raise. But what they have been saying is an awful lot of public spending. We're seeing that even before the manifestos come out. What, do you think that these public spending promises that we've had so far are credible if parties aren't going to raise tax? Can they just ramp up borrowing? In the long term, they are not credible. If you look at the long-term projections for what you would need to spend on particularly health and social care to maintain the kind of services that we offer at the moment, that is not consistent with the sorts of revenues that you would raise from the current tax system. The last year and a half, we have seen very little discussion of the issue of raising taxes If you go back to June last year when Theresa May first announced extra money for the NHS, at the time Philip Hammond was talking about the need to... He was the Chancellor then. Seems a long time ago. It does seem a long time ago. He was talking then about the need that the public would have to pay for some of this through higher taxes. But actually, because the fiscal and economic forecasts were revised upwards last October... The government didn't have to actually announce new tax rises then. So it got a bit of a break then, but those are still hanging there. Let's remember as well, this is quite a totemic issue historically in British politics. You go back to 1992, Labour's tax bombshell was a huge sort of propaganda win by the Conservatives that you know got them. You then had Gordon Brown come, came in with sort of talking about prudence. So for, And then Theresa May's so-called dementia tax well, and also, it was, a, it was a big blow to her in the election. Exactly, and the Conservatives in 2010, it was all about sort of austerity and reducing the deficit. So for a long period of time, parties have been approaching elections talking about how careful they will be about public finances, about public spending. And that seems to be changing, which is quite extraordinary. And it's changing for both parties. Is that again, Gemma, because of success that actually the deficit has come down, if not the debt? We're definitely in a very different world for the public finances ahead of this election than we have been ahead of recent elections. Because George Osborne and then Philip Hammond were very successful in reducing public borrowing to a level below where we were before the financial crisis. That has allowed Sajid Javid to now say, we've sorted the borrowing problem, we can turn the spending taps on again. There isn't a short-term issue with public borrowing. The question really is, looking a bit further ahead, are the sort of spending promises that the current government has made and that the Labour Party are likely to make in a manifesto campaign consistent with the current tax system? The answer is probably no, but we may not see all of that uh, discussion happening in the election. And part of that is because we actually haven't got updated public finance forecasts. So the official forecasts at the moment paint a rosier picture for the outlook for public borrowing than probably is really the case. And that's going to make it easier for both the main parties. We should get these forecasts then, shouldn't we? The Office of Budget Responsibility has to publish by law two forecasts a year. The cancelling of the budget means that they now haven't published any forecasts since last March. The government could have asked them to publish the forecast that they had been working on uh, ahead of the now cancelled budget. The Chancellor has chosen not to do that. Unfortunately, that does mean that the public are much less informed about what's really going on in the public finances. And undoubtedly, the economic outlook and the borrowing outlook has deteriorated since the OBR published those forecasts in March, and they would look worse if you publish them now. So we should all clamour for them to be published? We should do. David Liddington has been on the front line of the government's Brexit battles and the Conservative parties. He was Theresa May's de facto deputy prime minister. Like so many Tory moderates, he's now decided to call time on his career in the House of Commons. 
he spoke to Kath Haddon. Uh, David Liddington, thank you for joining us. Um, first question, what's it like stepping down as an MP after all this time, particularly in terms of, you know, the, the practicalities of it? You've got to pack up the office. You know, your life has been here for so long. It's coming to terms with the abruptness of it, uh, you know, because you know, a week ago people weren't really expecting an election in, in December. Um, but the key thing for me was always um, yeah, not about this election. I've been up to fight this election and serve a bit longer, but could I make a wholehearted commitment to a full five-year term in the next parliament? And I was of the view that there are other things I want to do with my life while I'm still still got the energy and the, the, the fitness to do that. And that was my reason. And uh, as an MP here since 1992, I mean, how much has Parliament, and particularly the atmosphere in this place, how much has that changed over the, your time as an MP? I think there's, there's, there's various changes. I mean, the, the atmosphere, I'm afraid, has soured, particularly in recent years, and I think the perceived need to respond to 24-hour media and just the impact of social media and the abusiveness that too many MPs experience from that has soured um, political debate. It's become more embittered than in the past. Against that, I think Parliament now is a less hierarchical place. We all, all say that um, the culture of deference is over. That applies to this institution uh, as much as any other. And in terms of the, the way the place functions, one of the biggest changes has been the fact that select committees... Uh, are now elected by the House, particularly the chairs of select committees, have to be elected on a cross-party vote of all MPs. And that has made them more powerful and more independent than in the past when the whips basically stitched it all up. I think that what John Burko's done in the chair to use urgent questions and emergency debates to insist that we debate what is in the news has been a real benefit um, to Parliament, and the other thing I've the other thing I've seen that has pros and cons to it is the change the Blair government brought in, which is to make all bills subject to a program motion. In effect, to have automatic guillotines for every piece of legislation. Now, when I first came in in John Major's time, you were routinely here till the small hours of the morning, and very few people um, provide the most lucid contributions to debate, to, to debate at that hour. But sometimes there have been bills where I felt debates being rushed, mm. important amendments have not been thoroughly debated and explored because of programming. So I think the Parliament always needs to keep in mind whether they've got the balance right. Mm. Well, let's talk a little bit about also your party and how much that's changed, because mm. you are uh, not alone as MPs stepping down at this time. And you know, you've got to ask, how much is the Tory party changing at the moment? And do you think... Do you think those changes are quite fundamental uh, after this election? As with everything else, time will tell. I mean, I've been encouraged by the Prime Minister talking publicly about having a One Nation manifesto by his emphasis on key social policy issues, NHS, social care, schools. I think the Conservative Party has suffered from an you know, erosion of its membership. Mm-hmm. I think the big challenge for the Conservative Party is that everybody's saying, well, you have to get Brexit done. It's, well, OK, well, first of all, it's a big European negotiation after that. But then how is the party going to address those social policy challenges at a time of dramatic and very fast economic and technological change? Uh, and how does the Conservative Party start to win more support 
amongst the groups in society where we are under polling at the moment. Mm. It is something that should worry every Conservative that in the 2017 election you had to get to 47-year-olds before you found an age cohort where more voted Conservative than Labour. So it's not just saying, oh, the students won't vote for us, Mm. they'll grow out of it. Uh, But if we're not getting the votes of people in their 20s and 30s and 40s who are paying taxes, who hold responsibilities at work and in their families, we have a serious problem. We're under-polling amongst women. We're under-polling amongst our country's black and Asian minorities. Talking about Brexit then, just for a moment, um, do you leave office with any sort of regrets or frustrations in terms of you were there at the centre for a long period of time? You know, was there more that the government could have done? Was there more that Parliament could have done to have delivered Brexit by this point? I think that in terms of delivering it, I mean, the problem I found in the various roles I had was that people were not willing to compromise. But I think too, um, particularly over the last two years, has been a real problem with people getting into trenches. Mm-hmm. One of the things Boris Johnson has done, I, I don't feel comfortable with every aspect of his deal, but he has actually, for the first time, you know, got a package that has secured a majority. Mm. OK, you're a historian also. Um, you know, at some point this parliament is going to get uh, evaluated, the 2017 to 2019 parliament. Will it be the one that couldn't deliver a Brexit, couldn't agree on it, or will it be the one that saved the country from a dangerous no-deal Brexit? <laughs> Oh, good, good question, and I think I think we'll know better when the official papers are opened in twenty years' time. Because what we don't know is how the government thought about what was going on in Parliament. I know I know what was going on in Theresa's time, but actually I don't know what's been going on since she and I both left office in July this year. I think it will be remembered as a a Parliament of great frustrations. The the, the outcome that the electorate delivered in. 2017 meant that it was horrendously difficult to form any sort of government at all. Now, I think for that reason, I think that I do think that um, after the 2017 election, um, an opportunity was missed to reset policy and and to try to steer things in a a, a more overtly consensual direction. The problem is that I'm not certain that would have worked well because... The Labour Party was and is led by Jeremy Corbyn, and I get on fine with personally, but it's not to take easily the idea of cooperation with the Tories. And the Liberal Democrats are still going through the hangover from the coalition experience in the 2015 election. So even had we made more of an offer at the start, I'm not certain that there would have been the response. Okay, just a final question then, looking ahead. um, You've said that the only way to settle Brexit is for Parliament to agree a way forward. Do you think there's a prospect of that, or are we heading for another hung Parliament? I think there's a prospect of doing it. I certainly will be campaigning and hoping for a Conservative majority that actually gets the Prime Minister's deal through. And then we can go on to to phase two, which is the the trade and security cooperation with the EU, is actually by far the most important element of the, the negotiation. Um, but it's possible it's up to the voters. You know, what I get back from voters in my patches is that they are absolutely pig sick of all this. You know, there are a lot of people now who, when the dreaded B word comes up, just reach for the off switch or change channels. So that needs to be sorted. And then there are so many other problems that we need to face. And when I was at the cabinet office, what I saw, and it's still going on now, is how much civil service time and energy and resource is being sucked up into the more of the, 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 the Brexit issue, 
when I want the clever people in the civil service also to be looking at prison reform, at how we deliver good, sustainable ideas on social care, how we modernise our NHS, how, how we equip the country to deal with economic challenges that digital technology and globalisation are proposing. Digital is shaking up white-collar industries now in the way that robots shook up factory floors, production lines a decade ago. So massive challenges. And at the moment, Brexit's absorbing so much of our energy and attention. We're finding it difficult as a parliament and in government to do justice to those other issues. So we need to get Brexit moving on for that reason. We at the Institute for Government love our data. We're always telling the government it doesn't produce enough of it. Charts, graphs, intricate tables of statistics, we love making them, we love to share them. We even put out a chart of the week. But it's hard to convey the beauty of a chart through a podcast, or is it? Luckily, Gavin Freegard, a programme director at the Institute and our data guru, has found a way. Gavin, welcome. Thank you very much. And you're bringing us our charts in the form of music. Indeed. And just remind us, if you don't mind, where you set out to take your team on an away day after a bruising deadline. Well, we thought it was only fitting to head to a town in Kent, which was called Great Chart. Uh, unfortunately, the beast. <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, the beast from the east put uh, put paid to that. This but was we... in quest of uh, of standing in front of the sign. Exactly. We we knew that that would be very very good Twitter content. Um, but somebody did also suggest we should try Chart Well next, which might be slightly safer. Where's that? I think no, that's no, also no, in no, don't, Kent. No, 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 don't go there. All right, Scotland. all right, Gavin. Tell me about the chart you want to talk about. So who'd have thought charts would work so well in a non-visual medium? Um, so the one you're about to hear, again, another chart that we've been using quite a lot recently, is showing the sort of step... It's a step chart showing the cumulative number of House of Commons defeats that different prime ministers have experienced. So very topical. Um, let's give it a listen. So this is Jim Callaghan. And what you're going to hear at this point, um, you'll sort of hear a chord when it's the start of a year, and then you'll hear notes rising for each cumulative Commons defeat. Jesus. <laughs> Theresa May next. <laughs> and finally, Boris Johnson. really so the health of the government or the success of the government it would be just one note repeated repeated and exactly and i think when we look at prime ministers like Attlee, cameron blair thatcher they have rel- relatively few defeats over their time so it's actually quite close to one note but then strong of course, and stable if you like indeed next week kath maybe you can sing the history over <laughs> actually the worst thing about it is that gavin was singing these to me last night i i was that is true and yeah, i apologize I can, wholeheartedly i can see this taking off the sound of data. There must be a musical in it. If anyone's tempted, I'm his agent. (laughs) It's nearly the end of the podcast. Before we go, one final question to the panel. This week has had loads of events. What should we look out for next week? Hannah? We've got the Speaker election on Monday, and then we are expecting Parliament to be dissolved probably on Wednesday. In between that, we'd normally have what's called the wash-up, where final bits of legislation that have been going through Parliament get dealt with or abandoned. But because this has been such a short parliamentary session, we're not really expecting anything much to happen of that nature. Great. And the Speaker election, who's electing the Speaker? 
MPs are electing the Speaker in a secret ballot, so they'll be able to choose who their preferred candidate is out of the nine who are standing. That Speaker will get a day in the post before they have to be re-elected after the election. They get the benefit, though, of being able to stand for the election as the Speaker seeking re-election and not being opposed by convention, although a we'll bi- see if that convention holds. Kath, next week? Uh, start of the formal campaign. So once that happens, guidance will be issued to civil service. I will be very excited to see that guidance and we'll be tweeting about it to see if there's any particular changes since the 2017 one. Uh, that's a very nerdy point. And I guidance feel I'm losing on what, Kath? Uh, this is guidance on the restrictions that civil service will be under, that and ministers will be under. Special advisors as well. And whether or not special advisors resign. This is a key thing actually to watch out for because normally special advisors can either stay in government and support their ministers or they usually have to resign if they want to go and campaign. So we will be watching out for that. Who goes in and out of number 10? Great. And Joe, next week? Uh, for me, the most exciting thing about next week is that it's going to be the first time in what feels like forever that we're not going to say there's a big Brexit crunch vote I in mean, Parliament. I mean, give it time, Joe. <laughs> give it time. So far, anyway. <laughs> and a comparative silence, I guess, from the European Union on that. Well, that's it this week from me, Bronwyn Maddox, and Inside Briefing with the Institute for Government. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all podcast platforms. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and feel free to share the podcast and leave a review. To find out more about the subjects we've talked about today and our work in general, do visit our website and follow all of us on Twitter. We're all there. Do get in touch with any feedback or any questions. We'd love to hear them. I hope you've enjoyed listening. See you next week when we return for the next episode of Inside Briefing.